don't know if there's anything quite as beautiful as hearing God's people and his children sing these type of words to him, to praise his name in that way, and to devote your whole life to him in prayer. And we can think of it when we sing in this way, this is the truth, this is not just an illustration. The reality is, is that even as we sing that song, our song rises to heaven. That our God himself hears our singing, hears us praising his name, and thus is, is gladdened by it. What an amazing thought that that's what we do in worship. We make our God glad, bring pleasure to him. We do that as well in devoting ourselves to his word. Would you turn with me in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 14. 1 Corinthians 14, we'll be reading verses 26 through 40. 1 Corinthians 14, verses 26 to 40. That's found on page 1,221 of your pew Bibles. We will also be reading from the Belgic Confession, Article 32. We skipped over Article 30 and 31. We covered those a while ago in our Exodus series on Chapter 18 in Exodus, where we looked at the foundation, the biblical foundation for the leadership in the church of elders and the offices. You see its infancy in Exodus 18. We looked at it there. And now we move to Article 32, the order and discipline of the church. We're going to read from the Belgic first this evening, and then we will read from 1 Corinthians. Before we read these words, not only from a confession, but especially from God's word, let's ask for the the blessing, the reading and preaching of his word. Dear Father, we pray that you would be here as we know you are. But when we ask it, we mean that you would convict our hearts, that we would be receptive and open, that we would be attentive to your word as it is read and proclaimed, even in minute details, even in the structuring and the ordering of the church, as we will read in just a moment, we pray we would give our full attention and full transformation of our lives, for to you be the glory and honor in all things, whether we eat or drink or whether we order our church. In all of these things, you be glorified, we pray. Amen. Article 32 of the Belgic is on the order and discipline of the church. It says, We also believe that although it is useful and good for those who govern the churches to establish and set up a certain order among themselves for maintaining the body of the church, they ought always to guard against deviating from what Christ, our only Master, has ordained for us. Therefore, we reject all human innovations and all laws imposed on us in our worship of God, which bind and force our consciences in any way. So we accept only what is proper to maintain harmony and unity and to keep all in obedience to God. To that end, excommunication with all it involves, according to the word of God, is required. We see the Belgic set forth what we believe God's word teaches in the doctrine order of the church. You see there, as we'll go in in the message, the order of a church, how a church orders itself. You see an ordering of worship, and you see an ordering of discipline. That's what we'll look on this evening after reading from 1 Corinthians chapter 14, where Paul lays down to the Corinthian church in a situation that they were experiencing the command to be orderly in worship. He says, What then, brothers, when you come together, each one has a hymn, a lesson, a revelation, a tongue, or an interpretation. Let all things be done for building up. 
If any speak in a tongue, let there be only two or at most three, and each in turn, and let someone interpret. But if there is no one to interpret, let each of them keep silent in church and speak to himself and to God. Let two or three prophets speak, and let others weigh what is said. If a revelation is made to another sitting there, let the first be silent. First, you can call prophecy one by one, so that all may learn and all be encouraged. And the spirits of prophets are subject to prophets. For God is not a God of confusion, but of peace. As in all the churches of the saints, the women should keep silent in the churches, for they are not permitted to speak, but should be in submission, as the law also says. If there is anything they desire to learn, let them ask their husbands at home. For it is shameful for a woman to speak in church. Or was it from you that the word of God came? Or are you the only one it has reached? If anyone thinks that he is a prophet or spiritual, he should acknowledge that the things I am writing to you are a command of the Lord. If anyone does not recognize this, he is not recognized. So my brothers earnestly desire to prophesy and do not forbid speaking in tongues, but all things should be done decently and in order. Ascends the reading of God's word. Decent and in order. Those words that govern our church, that govern our worship, governing our relations together, concepts we're familiar with. And we have to ask ourselves as we begin, is this really connected to the gospel? Why talk about church order? Why talk about these things? Does that really have anything to do with Christ? And we see in this passage, it certainly does as a reflection of the character of God, that that God is not a God of confusion, he's a God of peace. He would have his children function in an orderly way. And phrasing it that way, I think, helps us see the truth, as we would all have our children function in an orderly, respectful way. Is it not true that when children are disorderly, when they don't obey, when they uh, talk back to their parents, when they're not respectful, when they behave in such a way, that is a mark of dishonor onto the parents themselves. And it is a mark of honor to parents and boys and girls, then, if you want to honor your parents, it is to honor them to obey. It is to honor them to be, to be contained in your play, to listen to them in what they say, to be respectful honor them in all of that way. That shows an order. It shows a decency. And it gives honor and even glory to the parents. And in the same way, we give honor and glory to God in the the decency, in the orderings of our church. That's what we see at play in 1 Corinthians 14, where their worship had become Uncontained, where their worship had become disorderly and it wasn't done and it was inhibiting the very word of God in what they were doing and prioritizing speaking in tongues, prioritizing that and having everyone speak together in a cacophony of noise. And Paul is coming in to stop that and to show that no, as we obey the Lord, as we obey his word, as we are his followers, those who follow the gospel, those who have heard the good news and embraced it, That community is one that obeys and is orderly and decent and honoring not only of the worship service, but of God himself, honoring God's word as to not inhibit that practice. Put simply, our orderliness matters, and that's what we're talking about. Our orderliness matters in how we order the church. 
and how we come together in the rules we make for ourselves among our brothers and sisters and other brother, our sister congregations and churches. It matters in our orderliness. Our orderliness matters in worship, how we conduct the worship service so that the entirety of it is done to maximize the glory of God. Where everything done in it, in it is to point to Him, thus the call of decency and order. This is also why it's important in worship that we treat this time as sacred. And what do I mean by that? I mean, we treat the worship of God in an orderly way. We would not do or conduct ourselves in any way that would detract from the worship of the Lord. There's that example from Timothy where there were those in the church, the women who would have expensive hairstyles, their flamboyant wealth that they were showing, which was detracting from the worship, and Paul would tell them to put that away. To not be a source of temptation to other brothers and sisters while the worship is being conducted, certainly not ever, but especially not in the worship service. And so that's what we understand when we worship the Lord. We do so. We sit in our pews in such a way that it's orderly and decent, that God would be praised, that worship wouldn't be inhibited, that the distra- there would be no distraction from the word of God. In that way, we maximize the, the honor we give to him. See, it's not superstitious. And we don't even dress nicely because we're superstitious, as if, well, if you're going to church, you have to wear a suit and tie, otherwise you're not let in. No. Why do we dress up? Well, we want to be conducting ourselves decently and in order. That doesn't mean there's a dress code. It doesn't mean we can't accept anyone here dressed that way, and nor would we. The idea, though, of all of it, whatever we do, we're honoring and reverencing God. And thus you can see how things that aren't commanded by God can actually bear into the worship service. How we speak, how we dress, how we sit. You see, the manner in how we approach God is of significance. I said, to put simply, our orderliness matters. We could probably keep it even a little bit more more simple. Disorder dishonors. Disorder dishonors. Our God is a God of order. He has imprinted that in nature itself. Our God is a God of peace and not confusion. And so Paul tells the Corinthians to let one speak and the other interpret. Have these amount of people speak and no more. And let God's word have the center. Let God's word have the honor. We see even in our Belgic, the ordering of our churches. This is where it's taking it. It's from this idea that Paul says. And so now we look at the Belgic. We look at this biblical truth and we see, well, well, how is it applied in the churches? And why does that matter? We realize that though this might sound like a nice concept, it is more than just a nicety. It's something that's needed. Though we may desire to do things in whatever way, whichever way pleases us, without order, the church would split apart. Just as a nation, if you removed all laws and all order and those who enforced order and the discipline of the state, if you removed that, there would be anarchy that would reign. And the nation could not function in the very same way. A church cannot function if it does not have the same, if it does not have leadership and rules and discipline. The church will fall apart. And this is exactly the situations the Belgic is addressing. The Belgic is addressing something in its day. And there were two errors 
You had the heirs of the Anabaptists who came in and said there was no need to follow order. They said there was no obligation to obey church authority, and they threw it out the window. And they even threw out obedience and submission to civil rulers and magistrates. And thus, in some of their circles, there were rebellions, armed rebellions, and problems and issues that were coming about. And the Belgic here, and the writers of the Belgic, are trying to distance themselves from this. They're trying to say, this is not us. This is not us in the Reformed group here as we proclaim the gospel. We are not those who deny authority and order. We are those of order. We are those of submission. So that's the error of the Anabaptists. We've got to stay away from that. But then there was another problem. There's a flip side to good order. We all see order matters. But there's a problem when there is an overabundance of rules and regulations, when, when there's no freedom of thought, freedom of expression, when it is so constricted and confined to extra-biblical, and that's important, extra-biblical, meaning that's which outside of Scripture. And when the things outside of Scripture constrain, and they're trying to be orderly, but it's constraining the church, it can't function either. It suffocates. And so you had an opening of order, and the church would die that way, or you had a constricting of order, and the church would die that way. And that was the Roman Catholic Church putting in place practices of worship, practices of life, penance, you name it. This is what they were doing and confining consciences, going against what the Bible said, and we could say in that way, being over-orderly. That's, that's a rather nice way of saying it, but you get the point. They were being over-orderly, overly restrictive in the way God had not given them authority. So there's two authority problems. None and an overuse. The Belgic is walking the, the center road between those in wisdom. And we see that order expressed in church, the church order. This is how the Belgic begins. It says, We also believe that although it is useful and good for those who govern the churches to establish and set up a certain order among themselves for maintaining the body of the church. And we're going to just look at that for this moment. So they're making an allowance. They're actually accepting a truth. They're saying we all believe, we also believe, that although it is useful and good, so it's saying it is useful and good to have order among the churches, to have order governing themselves. And we're going to look at that here that's important for us to realize. It's important for us to know that the church actually needs to order itself. It can't function without it. We have a church order. Most of the churches of our, our ilk, if I could call it that, of our Reformed heritage do. There are church orders. And this is the way they've come together and bound themselves to act according to these rules, recognizing these rules don't have in all respects scriptural weight and authority but as Paul exemplifies in our text, as the Belgic is saying, without these rules and orderliness, the church can function. What do I mean? We know we're commanded in Scripture to worship. But at what time? And where? And how often? Should we have one worship service, two worship services, three or four on a given day? Where do we draw that line? What about preaching? The church is given a biblical call to preach. It is the, the vehicle, the body that brings God's word. Well, who can preach? Anyone? Clearly we know that that's not biblical, but then how do you guard that? And what's required for one to be, to be examined and to be deemed appropriate and installed into an office and able to preach? 
what schooling is involved. You see how all of these practical applications of a biblical call and principle are needed. And thus you have the church order. And the church order functions in some ways very directly applying a scriptural principle. And in some ways it's just the need that's there that without the church couldn't function. Here's an example of one that isn't commanded by scripture but is given in wisdom. We're doing it right now. Our church order talks about having, it says that there will be two worship services on every Lord's Day. And it says that ordinarily one of those services will be preaching God's word as presented in one of our confessions. We call that catechism preaching. And so even in our church order, we are bound in that sense. We are bound as we have come together as churches to function and operate according to this order. And in the, de- and in the writing of that order, it was deemed that theological knowledge of God's word was very important. And so the churches who came together in our federation said that we will retain this practice. And thus we operate according to it. We believe that it's necessary and good. Did it have to function that way? It did not. But there is wisdom. There's wisdom that is used in it. So you see there are some calls that we do in the church order, like baptism, which is just a clear obedience to Scripture. There are other things that get more like Paul's example in 1 Corinthians, where it's not necessarily that there's a command to do it this way, but it's rather in the orderliness of the church, that things would be decent. It doesn't remove the authority of the church order. There is an authority there. It's a derived authority from the leaders of God's people. It's not on the level of Scripture. It's not on the level of the confessions, but it's still an order nonetheless. This matters. Why does that matter? Because in our context, we think, no, we don't need order. We'll do it the way we want. And why do you do that? Why do you have this practice? Why do you say that you shall gather twice on every Lord's Day? Why do you make that a stipulation in your order? Well, it's to the glory of God. And so you see even in the Belgic that there's the recognition church order is necessary. We need church order. Without it, we would be in disorder, which is to dishonor God himself. He would have his people function decently and in good order. And thus, it's necessary for the character and the command of God to function in such ways. said that quickly. I'm going to pause and say it again so that we get that. Because of the character and command of God, all things in the church should be done decently and in order. Because of the character and command of God, it's it's how we began. We're We're his children. We're his family. And so we behave in respect and honor order. To reflect the very character of God, to obey his command, that all would be done in such ways. That's why it's significant. The gospel permeates so much, permeates everything, down to a church order. The reason why we do that? Yes, there's a reason. There's a good reason. Sometimes we just think, sometimes we think too much of ourselves. We don't give much thought to something and we think, why do you need a church order? What a waste of time. That's just not necessary. Without much thought, without much thinking that, no, it is, it's in fact quite necessary. No, it's a way, a vehicle of glorifying God, praising his name and honoring of him. All for that goal, the one central purpose. We saw it in 1 Corinthians, the promotion of the word of God for the worship and glory and honor of his name. Thus we order ourselves. 
So that's the first point, the order of the church, the church order. We see, and we're going to go through this quickly, we've been talking about this already, and that's the worship order. You see that especially in our text. Paul wants them to arrange their worship services in that way, in that way that promotes orderly worship and the word of God. This is what we would also call the regulative principle of worship. What is the regulative principle of worship? We've heard it before. It's that we do nothing in worship that God has not commanded. And this is in the Belgic where you start getting at a more heart matter and a more, and I'll say it this way, a more important matter. And the matter that is important is our worship of the Lord and whether our consciences are strained in it. And that's getting back to what Rome had done. What Rome had done in going outside of Scripture. And not in the ways we're talking, where to fulfill a scriptural command and ideal, there was an order established. They went so far as to establish such practices that constrained consciences. That made those have to go according to this for their salvation. That if they did not do such things, they would not be saved. And they started tampering with the very idea of salvation itself. You see the dangers of what happens when we let go of ordering ourselves according to Christ's rule, as the Belgic would say. When we don't hold to that firmly and faithfully, we do jeopardize salvation itself. God is very clear in his word that there are acceptable ways to worship him and unacceptable ways to worship him. Way in the beginning, Cain offered his sacrifice to the Lord and it was not accepted. Abel's was. Cain was not worshiping appropriately, and God denied that as acceptable worship. We also see in the second commandment, God says that there will be no worship of him through images, through idols. There would be no idolatry in worship. And the Heidelberg Catechism explains it by saying that we in no way make any image of God, nor worship him in any other way than he has commanded in his word. If only all in our churches knew this. Think of Nadab and Abihu, who did not worship the Lord as they were called to, who offered a strange fire, corrupted the burning of the incense, and were killed because of it. There are correct ways to worship God and incorrect ways to worship God, and the worship of God is governed by his word in such a way that consciences are not constrained to go beyond that, that it's not added to. Go against your conscience is a sin. To go against your conscience is dangerous. We are never called to do it. And the church then has to be extra careful and on their guard lest they institute something that binds where God's word does not bind. That places weight and authority where God's word does not. We can see that conscience matters in 1 Corinthians in the earlier chapter. In chapter 8 of 1 Corinthians, Paul deals with another issue of the church, meat offered to idols. There was a divide in the church. There were those who said that you could eat this meat because idols were not real. It's allowable. That's what they were saying. And the other side, who had more recently converted, were opposed to this, saying, how could you do such a thing? And so there were these warring factions, and Paul comes in, and he actually tells them that he agrees with those who say, it is not wrong to eat this meat. Idols, false gods, are not real. This meat is just meat. It isn't wrong to eat it. But then he says this, beginning in chapter 8, verse 7. However, not all possess this knowledge. 
But some, through former association with idols, eat food as really offered to an idol, and their conscience, being weak, is defiled. Food will not commend us to God. We are no worse off if we do not eat, and no better off if we do. But take care that this right of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. For if anyone sees you who have knowledge eating in an idol's temple, will he not be encouraged if his conscience is weak to eat food offered to idols? And so, by your knowledge, this weak person is destroyed, the brother for whom Christ died. Thus, sinning against your brothers and wounding their conscience when it is weak, you sin against Christ. Therefore, if food makes my brother stumble, I will never eat meat, lest I make my brother stumble. So you see from Paul there that devotion to the gospel message in such a way that even where free, even where free to eat, he would not if it would take someone's conscience and place it in such an arena where they will fail and fall. Take that then and how much more so is it dangerous for a church to constrain consciences where it should not. Paul's example of those who were seeking to constrain consciences because they were incorrect, and yet he was willing to accommodate them in brotherly love lest they sin against their conscience. How dangerous, dangerous for the church to actually go that step further and constrain consciences, putting up obstacles of the gospel itself. So the order of worship matters. The order of salvation matters. In our last and final point, we see the order expressed in discipline at the end of the Belgic article. Because the church is commanded to be orderly and structured upon the principles of God, God's word, conducting worship according to God's word, exercising according to God's word, well, it makes necessary then to, for the church to perform discipline. Discipline is necessary for the orderly life of the church. We'll use the family again. Those kids that we said can reflect upon their parents in their obedience and honor and respect. How are they made that way? How are they fashioned and, and grow in that way? Well, it is through the rod of discipline. Discipline done well. Discipline done for a corrective measure. Discipline done in love, in proper restraint, but in full use. And thus children grow in an orderly and respectful way. And this is exactly the way the church functions with discipline. Orderly discipline, done well, with restraint, in love, but in full use. Discipline matters first for God's glory. Discipline matters first for God's glory. We uphold the holiness of God through discipline. The church can't let its name be associated with those who aren't truly believers. So much damage is done in the church when those who are not truly of it go out and promote it as if they are functioning in ways that are sinful and reprehensible and in such ways they dishonor God. And so for God's own glory, we discipline. We discipline in that way because we honor him enough to place him at the center. See how we always are brought back to that? God's always front and center. It's always for his honor. It's always for his glory. That's why we discipline as well. For the very holiness of God. The second reason we discipline is for the purity of the church. If an unbeliever is allowed to remain a member in it, it would corrupt the church through practice, through sinful practice, and that 
that way of bringing in others to their sin, or through sinful teaching and heresy. They were allowed to stay in and weren't cut off from the body of believers. They could and would corrupt the people around them. And so for the very purity of the church, discipline is necessary. Third reason for discipline is the peace of the church. Without discipline, and again, you know this in your homes, we all know this in our homes, is there peace where discipline is absent? It's chaos. It's chaos. In the church, it's the same thing. Where there is not discipline practiced well and appropriately, there will not be peace. There will be warring factions and strife. And why, why is that a problem? Because we dishonor God. We inhibit worship. We corrupt the gospel. We matter. Do we hear that? We matter. How we act reflects on the character of God. What we do as a church reflects on the character of God. How gracious of Him to allow us to fill such a role. And so we better be devoted to decent, orderly, respectful, God-glorifying, word-centered ministry. Peace of the church, third reason. The fourth reason is for sanctification. And this is where the one being disciplined is not left outside of the meaning. The purpose for discipline is for their own growth. The purpose for discipline is that they would become orderly members of the church, behaving in all honor and respect. That they would repent of their sin when confronted with the threat and the the declaration of the church that if they are to continue in this practice, if they are to continue in this way of life, they are walking to destruction and hellfire. To heed that warning to respond is for their good. To tell them the truth, to hold nothing back, to have consequences for what is done. This is what's needed for God's people. Order in the church matters. It matters because God commands it. It matters because God's character is reflective of it. This is why we worship. This is why we do what we do for the glory of God. People of God, there is a reason we have a church order. There's a reason we have a regulative principle. There's a reason for discipline. All of this matters. Sometimes we have to be a bit stronger than what we are and realize we need to sit and listen to these things. We need to devote our attention to it. We need to apply it to our life. Because that front and center always is that the way we act reflects God. And more important than that, we're dealing with the gospel message of salvation itself. Might not seem as big of a deal here. It will certainly seem a big big deal on Judgment Day because of the disorderly conduct of a church. How many never heard the true gospel? And how many were not disciplined appropriately and walked right off that cliff? Now it does matter. The order and honor of the church matters because we are Christ's bride and we serve him. Because of the character and command of God, all things in the church should be done decently and in order. Let's be thankful that Paul gives us such commands. Let's be thankful that we are so warned that we would act, function appropriately for the honor of our God. Let's pray.
Father in heaven, we see that even in such normal and ordinary matters, the gospel still penetrates and the gospel has an application to make. We see that we are to function according to your word, going no further than what your word commands, and yet ordering our church in such a way that the gospel can be most effectively proclaimed and you can be most effectively worshipped. We thank you for the practices of the church that we stand on. We stand on years of saints and their prayers and work in these matters, but we thank you for your word, for your word that guards and guides your word that gives us wisdom. We pray as we have been thinking that we know we truly reflect you. We bear witness to who you are. and It is a frightening thought, and yet at the same time, one that gives us a tremendous amount of, of honor, a tremendous amount of joy to be so placed where you have given us a role to, to witness to the nations on your behalf individually and as the church. We pray that that is exactly what we would do. We pray that this would not be done so we could keep a a dead tradition alive, that it would be done for the very reason your word gives, that you would be glorified and your gospel would be proclaimed. We pray this in Christ's name.